This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into this podcast, please be aware that this episode contains graphic details of murder that some people may find distressing. Today on the Indo-Daily, the murder of Ashling Murphy and how Yosef Pushka tried to get away with it. 23-year-old primary school teacher was killed on the banks of the Grand Canal outside Tullamore last Wednesday. It's thought she was out exercising when she was attacked. Ashleen epitomised the beauty of life, shared her passion, gifts and talents with others so generously. We pray for her friends, colleagues and students. May Ashleen's legacy live in the hearts of all she touched. Lord hear us. Lord graciously hear us. When schoolteacher Ashling Murphy was brutally killed in broad daylight, it sent shockwaves across the nation. I think men need to listen more to women. We need to listen more to what women are saying to us. Uh, and sometimes we don't do that good, in, in a good enough fashion. I want to be able to go on a jog at four in the afternoon or even at ten at night or midnight or three in the morning or whatever, like to do just to be able to live without worrying that some man is going to come along and like end my life. Today, Yosef Pushka was found guilty of her murder in Tullamore in January 2022. I'm Fiona Sheehan, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Catherine Fegan and Emer Cotter of the Irish Independent, who have both covered the case extensively, to tell the story of the Ashling Murphy trial. Catherine, can you take us back to early in 2022 and news broke of a murder in Tullamore in County Offaly. Yes, it was January 2022. It was a Wednesday. Uh, a press release came in from the Gardaí just before seven o'clock about a serious assault. It was on the Grand Canal Way in Tullamore, County Offaly. That was all the details that we had. And then Less than an hour later, another Garda press release saying that this was a fatal assault, that a woman in her 20s had died and that a man in his 40s had been arrested, that the scene had been preserved and um, an investigation was now opened, a murder investigation. I was working from home that day and straight away, this was a really, really big story. Um, It was all over social media uh, that this had happened. all the crime journalists were, were ringing the guards to try and get details. 
it was a real frenzy to try and get details on, on who this was. And very, very quickly it emerged that it was a young woman, Ashleen Murphy, a primary school teacher from uh, Tullamore in County Offaly. She'd been teaching in Durrow uh, Primary School. She had been, she'd, she'd finished school that day and she'd gone for a walk on the Grand Canal Way in Tullamore. And she'd met a lone attacker. The guards described him as a lone attacker on that day. And she'd been fatally assaulted and was dead. To say it sent shockwaves across the nation would almost be an understatement. It was almost a moment over the following 48 hours where, where people, there was a, a groundswell of emotion around her death. Yeah, I think everybody will remember the reaction to this because it was so widespread. Um, a lot of emotion, um, national outpouring, like you say, uh, the details of it, of this this scene of this young girl on a very public walkway. Like I've been down there at the Grand Canal Way in Tullamore. It's um, a very open area and the locals are very proud of it. Uh, a lot of people had used it during the, the pandemic to exercise. Very busy area. Uh, it was considered a very safe place to exercise. We had this young girl out. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. It was, it was still bright. She's out there. Like I say, it was very busy. Some stranger emerges from the darkness and, and kills her in broad daylight. Yeah, so it, it was kind of, it wasn't dark, lonely corner of Dublin city centre late at night in a rough part of town or like that. This was very much middle of Ireland, well-known town, very public location, stranger attacking a young woman. Yeah, I remember going down to the scene the next day. The first place I went to was the scene. I stood at Digby Bridge and looked down. You could see the the crime scene tent was on the, the tarmac side of the path. Really open space, um, n- no obvious places to hide. Looked very, very safe. No corners or it just looked like somewhere that something like this would never happen and there was a lot of people at the scene at that time that was the next day and people who used it all the time were down gathering and they had said that they just couldn't believe that this had happened at this particular site people had walked along this at night even they felt it was so safe we have lost a dear colleague and a friend in our school um, Ashley was a shining light in our school she lit up the corridors the pupils faces were gleaming every day they saw her an extraordinary fantastic human being there's a lot of shock uh, about that. And then this all came on the back of the, the Sarah Everard murder in the UK and this idea that, that women, you know, should be able to go out and walk on their own and, and not be attacked. But this would never happen in Ireland. This doesn't happen here. And, and all of a sudden we're faced with this reality. Well, it has happened here. And there, there was a vigil uh, at that bridge, as you, as you recall, uh, for Ashling, family members attended and they played music and it was just, it was a, a remarkable moment. They just kept coming. Hundreds of people filling the streets around the Irish Parliament in Dublin. At vigils nationwide, they paused to express their shock and anger at the murder of Ashleen Murphy. Yeah, it was a really poignant scene. That was the Friday night. Um, very quickly after the murder, um, Ashling's photo was everywhere. Face was everywhere on social media and all the newspapers, on the TV. Uh, everybody was talking about this case. 
And a picture was developing of her as well. Yeah, she she was 23, primary school teacher. Like I say, I came from qu- quite a small family and she came from Blue Ball, just outside Tullamore. She had a, an older sister and an older brother and her family were steeped in this music tradition. Her father had, uh, he played, uh, he, he played the banjo. She was a very talented fiddle player and she played a tin whistle. Her sister played the button accordion. They were really involved in this traditional music scene, very well known locally. She was also a very keen sportswoman. She played for the Camogie team. Uh, she tutored music, so she knew a lot of young people in the area. And then she was a teacher, so she had, uh, you know, she had a lot of pupils and she knew a lot of staff in the school. Um, just a really accomplished person who was very, very well known, very well liked. And like you said, this person, there, this picture started to emerge around. I think everybody could connect with various bits of her personality. Everybody knew an Ashling or somebody like an Ashling, And there was just so much emotion connected to what had happened to her, both locally and nationally, that this groundswell just emerged. She was literally everywhere. And like you said, these vigils started to, to be planned, you know, all over Ireland. There were vigils in New York, in London, everywhere. And then on the Friday night, the focal point of the vigil was was in the main town in, in Tullamore. But there was a separate vigil at Digby Bridge, which her parents, like you say, attended. Her sister was there, her brother was there, and her boyfriend was there. And they made this very solemn pilgrimage as such along the canal way opposite the crime scene because they couldn't walk down the path and they all linked arms and walked down. Everybody was watching it. It was a very sad scene. Um, Walked down and walked back and they came back to the car park there and the priest said a few words and her father played her favourite song which was Sweet Sixteen. Um, It was very, very, very sad. The crime, I think, has also asked questions of ourselves and of our society. It has questioned our attitudes, and particularly our attitudes towards women. And it has questioned, too, our values and our morality. The Gardaí had got a man, though. There was no manhunt because they had got the the suspects straight away. Straight away, and it was in that second press release. We have a, we have a man in custody, he's in his 40s, um, and he's being questioned, you know, by Gardaí. And when I went down there on the 13th, all the locals knew that somebody had been arrested for this. They knew who it was. They were talking about this person. They knew where he lived. They knew his family. Um, and there was a sense that, yes, this awful thing has happened. It's awful. This girl's been brutally killed. But the man who did it has been has been caught. He's been apprehended so we can move on. And then on the Thursday night, uh, another guard of press release this man has been released without charge. Police released their first suspect, sparking renewed fear, but later said they were making significant progress. There was there were huge parallels between this and the murder of Sarah Everard last year. It's a young woman out on her own, um, except that this happened in the middle of the day. It could have been anybody. He had been wrongly um, ID'd in a, um, a, an ID parade. Um, it wasn't him. By that stage, they had... Uh, fingerprint evidence from the saddle of the bike that was found at the scene and they had DNA evidence and they re- realised it didn't match this particular individual so he was released and let go um, and the vigil was taking place in Tullamore the next day all these vigils and I can remember at that time that there was an awful lot of anger over the fact that now we have, have somebody still on the loose like where is this man is he still here is he going to strike again people were you know the 
sadness and grief was moving towards anger and people were like very, very frightened. So you basically had a, a manhunt centering around Tullamore. But meanwhile, Emer, it was actually above in Blanchardstown Hospital in Dublin that there was a development. Yes, there had been a completely unrelated stabbing in Blanchardstown the previous night and the guards were aware of two people. And then they were they became aware of a possible third victim. So they went to St. James Hospital to speak to Joseph Pushka as a potential victim of a crime. One of the first things that both Gardy, uh, Garda Connor Newman and Sergeant Paul MacDonald, um, what they both noted was the marks, the scratches on his hands and on his forehead. And um, when they spoke to um, Pushka, he, I suppose, Prosecution Counsel Anne-Marie Lawler in her closing speech called it a cock and bull story. <laughs> but he told them that he had gotten um, he got in a taxi from Houston Station to out to Blanchardstown where he hoped to meet a, a woman and that he literally had arrived there, gotten out of the taxi and he was immediately assaulted by two men. What the guards later said was that the story, there was a lot of holes in the story. He wasn't able to tell them where it happened. He wasn't able to give a description of the, the alleged assailants. Um, he, was, he didn't have any details of the woman that he was supposed to meet. They were suspicious and they went back to their inspector, Shane McCartan, and they spoke to him and they knew Pushka was from Tullamore. And they just got this sense that there was the story didn't add up. It didn't make sense. So they decided to contact their colleagues in Tullamore. And it basically was that conversation that led to everything that has happened since. Pushka is, is basically, he's arrested and, and charged. And then we're back to Tullamore because the, the charges take place on a, on a very heated night down in down in Tullamore uh, at the district court there. Yusuf Pushka was officially charged on the 19th of, of January, so he's taken to Tullamore District Court. Uh, there's a lot of tension building in the interim. You know, we have Ashton's uh, murder, her funeral had taken place, very sad, and we had this um, initial suspect who was arrested and released, and then we have this new suspect. Social media was it was described as quite um, ugly in, in court by um, Michael Bowman at, at that time. He was saying that there was a real sense of hysteria being whipped up on social media in and around Tullamore about what was happening, who was being arrested, who might have done this. There was a lot of tension rising and this culminated um, in the crowd that had gathered outside Tullamore District Court that night. It was, it was a special sitting for him to be charged. And a lot of, there was a lot of videos that emerged of that, um, if you recall at the time, and the crowds that were outside. I remember the, the prison van that took Pushka to, to court that evening. Um, they had surrounded it. It was just, it, was, it looked like, it looked like, like at least a hundred people had gathered. They were angry. They were shouting various things at him. He was taken out. He had the, he had his mask on. We're still in COVID times. He had the mask on and he's taken out. 
it just looked like an angry, it was like a lynch mob had descended. Um, real palpable sense of anger and huge crowds of people just shouting abuse. It looked like a very sort of dangerous situation that evening. So he, he's charged uh, with, with murder on, on that occasion and then the case is basically prepared against them. So we are effectively then moving forward to uh, October of 2023. Uh, the case is moved to the to the Central Criminal Court, Emer. And yet I have to say there was a, a, a string of evidence and witnesses brought forward. Two uh, people that's, that stood out were two joggers who were also uh, along the canal that day. It's funny, though, how Catherine talks about all the emotions that was around that time of the vigil. When it came to the court, that was the one thing that the judge, the prosecution, that, you know, everyone said this, there is no emotion in a court. It has to be any findings of guilt or innocence has to be based on evidence. And there can be no emotion, no sympathy, either for Ashling or for uh, Joseph Pushka, either um, in a decision that is made by the jury. Um, so it's interesting that there was so much emotion around it and now suddenly we're at the stage where there's absolutely no emotion. And that can be very hard for the family to hear because suddenly Ashling, their Ashling, is, is evidence in a trial against somebody, you know. So in relation to uh, Jenna Stack and Aoife Marin, they were the two joggers. They were actually both teachers as well. And uh, they'd gone for a run and... Jenna saw a bike on in the underground, or in the undergrowth, I should say, and she kind of thought it was just a bit weird. And literally, that's where it where it started from. She was like, "What's a bike doing there?" And she's thinking, "That looks like a nice bike. That's a weird place for a bike." And she looks at it and she says it to Aoife, and uh, then they hear rustling, and they said they knew it wasn't from an animal. You know, that it definitely wasn't that kind of rustling. So they looked and uh, one of them went, you know, hello, is everything okay down there? And uh, when um, Jenna moved down a little bit and that's when she said that she saw this man on top of who we now know was Ashling Murphy. And uh, she said she couldn't see her, she could see her legs and Pushka was crouched over her and uh, she said um, Ashling was kicking really, really hard that she was she was using her core. She was trying to do her best to escape. And uh, when she saw what was happening, they immediately ran to get help. Help arrives, but unfortunately it is, it is too late. What do we learn about how Ashling Murphy died? We learned that Ashling Murphy was stabbed um, 11 times to to the right side of her neck. The the wounds, the stab wounds would have cut her, her voice box, her artery, her left and right cartoid um, and her jugular vein. So really, when that happened, she didn't stand a chance. There's a string of other witnesses who were there at the, at the scene uh, on the day, but there's also forensic and DNA evidence. Yes, some of the, the DNA evidence proved to be crucial in, in, in this murder investigation. First, the bike that was found on the scene, uh, Joseph Pushka's fingerprint and his DNA were found on it. Now, 
he tried to explain that away by saying he had been at the scene, he had been trying to help Ashling, and he wasn't the killer. So that was how he was explaining that his bike was at the scene and so therefore it wasn't unusual that his DNA would have been on on, on his bike. Um, they also found a male um, DNA um, sample underneath um, Ashling Murphy's fingernails. So this is what, what happens with this. This is when all the female DNA is excluded and it's just, the, they just focus on the male DNA. And they discovered that that was, that was linked also to, to uh, Joseph Pushka. So these scratches on the, uh, under her fingernails, it's not something that would have come from casual contact or passing each other. This would have had to have been close contact. And uh, basically what Anne-Marie Lawler said was that she scratched him. She was scratching, she was fighting for her life and she became her own investigator in her own murder. That's what she said in her closing speech. So Ashling helped to catch her killer ultimately. Catherine, we've got this contradictory evidence then directly from Bushka himself. Tell us about what he told Gardy in the initial interviews back in in the middle of, of, of January when they interviewed him during that period when he was in, in the hospital. After the contact with Gardy and, and Tullamore, they dispatched two of their own good island to see Pushka. And during the first interaction with him, uh, he's taken into a, a side room so they can speak to him. And they have an interpreter on the phone to interpret his um, native language is Slovakian. So that first interview is to do with you know, what happened to you? How'd you get these these injuries? And he tells them this story about this, um, th- these two assailants, you know, assailants at, at, in Blanchardstown uh, coming out of nowhere and stabbing them and all of this. Um, and so they leave it at that and they, they leave them, they go away. And in the meantime, uh, they, they've got to get a warrant um, for the hospital to, to get his his clothes, his phone, whatever items they wanted to seize. And they come back later that evening and they, they speak to Yusuf Pushka again. Uh, he's in a, another, a private room at this stage. Uh, there's, there's two guards in the room with him, the interpreter's on the phone. And they're asking him questions and they tell him, they explain the warrant to him, what the warrant's about. And at some point in the conversation, they say, well, we're here, we're, it's in relation to the to a murder in, in Tullamore. And through his interpreter, he says, am I, am I a suspect in this case? And he's told, again, through the interpreter, you're a person of interest. And we heard from the guardie who interviewed him and we also heard from the interpreter in court. So they all testified about what happened in this room and they said that after that there was a pause and Yosef Pushka tells his interpreter that he wants to make a literal trans- translation. You know, I want you to take me word for word now. I'm going to tell you something. I want word for word you to translate. And he says, you know, when these words are widely known at this stage, he says... I did it, I murder, I'm the murderer. So they get this admission from Yusuf Pushka about him. He, he's, he's murdered Ashley Murphy. So they have this this admission and two of the guard leave, another guard comes in to, to stay with Pushka um, and he continues to, to talk to him. Uh, I think it's a guard of Fergus Hogan was the name of this guard. He's in the room with Pushka after this initial admission. And he goes further. He says, you know, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I cut. I cut her. 
and, and he mentions that uh, a, nice, a nice that he had for the chain of his bike. At this stage of the game, uh, the details of how Ashleen Murphy hadn't been made public. It was done for operational reasons. The guards hadn't made that detail about her being stabbed or any sort of weapon being used. Um, so that was a key detail. So uh, they decided at that point that he shouldn't be questioned anymore without a solicitor and the, the guards are instructed to leave him. Um, so the next time that Yosef uh, Pushka is, is spoken to by guards is on the 18th of January when he's discharged. And that's when he was he, he was arrested in St. James's Hospital and taken to Tullamore uh, Guard Station when, again, story changes. Detectives investigating the murder of the 23-year-old primary school teacher last Wednesday have arrested a man in his 30s. He's currently being detained at Tullamore Guard, a station under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act 1984. That, then, Amor, the story changes, then continues on when he takes a stand, presenting himself as this good Samaritan figure who happened upon the scene. Pushka took to the stand um, and he was led through his evidence by Ms., uh, by Michael Bowman, his de- defence counsel, who told him, this was your story to tell. I can't tell your story for you. This is your story. And <clears throat> he told the story of being on his bike on the canal and an unidentified, I think somebody called it um, a COVID-compliant killer, came along, pushed him off his bike and then proceeded to stab him twice. And then Ashling Murphy came along and he saw her. He was stabbed a third time and he was lying there and he he was unclear as to how it happened. But when he looked up, he saw Ashling Murphy and this other COVID-compliant killer um, in the bushes. He got up and he went over to them and the killer went off, ran off. And that's when he saw that Ashley Murphy, he could see there was blood. He could see that there was wounds on her neck. And he picked up a scarf or her scarf and he put it over her and he was trying to he was trying to help her. And that's when he said that uh, Jenna Stack, the jogger, came along. And what she thought was him hurting Ashling was actually him helping her. There was one uh, witness who raised question marks about uh, Pushka's con- hospital confession uh, as such. That was a, 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 a consultant who raised issues about should he have been interviewed in the hospital? Yes, this was Dr. Johan Grundling. Um, he was um, a consultant, um, an emergency med- medicine and intensive care uh, consultant who is based in the UK. And he would he has worked in the NHS, I think, for over 20 years. I suppose he raised a number of questions. I think that was probably as far as he, he could go um, in relation to um, Pushka's uh, confession. He said that he was... He, he was post-operative, so he just had surgery. He was in an unfamiliar environment. He didn't speak the language. And he was also on a, a strong painkiller called oxycodone. And um, he said that all these things together raised a doubt about Pushka's confession. Nonetheless, the prosecution was having none of this. 
No, they weren't. Um, they called their own expert witness, uh, Professor Michael uh, Ryan, who's a world-renowned expert in um, toxicology. And he basically said that the amount of oxy- oxycodone in uh, Pushka's system at the time that he made this confession was so small that it wouldn't have had any impact on him at all. Catherine, another compelling witness was Anne-Marie Kelly. Who was she? What was her role here? So Anne-Marie Kelly, she was another primary school teacher in this story and she had come to give evidence of her interactions with Joseph Pushka on the 12th of January 2022. So she had headed off for a walk uh, shortly before two o'clock on that day with her dog, little dog Joey. She set off and uh, she's she's walking around Church Church Avenue on, on, in Tullamore um, on her way to the Grand Canal Way. And she said that she felt like someone was behind her. She had this really uneasy feeling like somebody was behind her. And she she realises there's a man behind her on a bicycle, cycling really close, really behind, makes her feel very uneasy. Um, so much so that on two occasions, she tries to get him to pass her out. Um, but she carries on regardless. She describes him. You know, she gives a description, foreign looking, is on the bike, dark eyes. It's Joseph Pushkin. He didn't deny that it was him, but he said he wasn't following her at all. And she gets to Digby Bridge and thinks that she's lost Pushkin at that point and continues back to Tullamore. So she's walking back towards Tullamore um, after all of this really odd behaviour from this man. And she described passing various people on that walk back. She was asked about the last person that she passed on that route back to Tullamore. And she said she passed um, this really young girl. She said she was younger than her. And she actually lit up when she was talking about her. Um, and you could tell she didn't name the person, but everybody knew who she was talking about. And um, she said that they were talking about her dog, that the girl asked her about her dog, what breed he was, and that she was petting the dog. And she said she was really friendly and really smiley and just chatty and nice. And that was the last person that she passed that day. So that was Ashley Murphy. So she passes Ashley Murphy. Ashley's heading toward Digby Bridge, which we know she turned and walked back. And on her walk back, she met her killer. She met Joseph Pushka. Emer, ultimately, the... the, the the prosecution wasn't accepting anything that Pushka was putting forward. What, what, would, what were the key points in, in summing up the case? Well, Anne-Marie Lawler, in her closing, um, she said that Pushka pivoted between lying and not remembering. And she said some of the lies that he said were foul and contemptible. Um, I suppose she started with the confession. And she said the confession was powerful evidence. And she said... You know, it might be blindingly obvious, but he said he did it because he did it. And I suppose that was that was her first point. And uh, then she also mentioned the DNA evidence that was found. And she also mentioned Anne-Marie Kelly as well. But she said that she felt a little foolish, maybe, that she was engaging in this fantasy that Pushka had put, that, Amra, or that um, Ashling Murphy had been killed by this six-foot man in a COVID mask. And she said that, you know, 
The truth of the matter was the man who claimed he went to help her was the man who killed her. And that then what happened then was he went and stabbed himself. He tried to retrofit the stabbing into a story. And he told lies after lies after lies. Now, uh, defence counsel Michael Bowman said that, you know, lying was was not, um, was not necessarily evidence of guilt. And he also reminded the jury that a second man had been arrested and then later cleared of any involvement in Ashling's murder. And it was a stark reminder to everyone that it was easy to become a suspect um, in, in, in a situation like this. Imer, you're, you're covering a lot of these trials uh, over, over time. Could Joseph Pushka have gotten away with it? Well, now, that's the big question. Um, Pushka wasn't known to the guards. He had no previous convictions. He had never come to their attention. He got away from the scene um, without being detected. Um, I mean, flights from from Dublin to Slovakia, They, I checked during the winter, they go on uh, every Sunday on a Thursday. The murder happened on a Wednesday. In theory, Joseph Pushka could have been out of the country. Um, flight, I think it's only about €100, Euro, single single flight to, to um, Bratislava at the moment. So he could have been gone. I suppose the funny, not the funny thing is, but what actually alerted the Garthi was Pushka stabbing himself. And if he hadn't gone to or to if he hadn't been brought to St James's Hospital, if he hadn't spun the story, which made no sense, the guards may not, it may have taken them much longer to have come to have identified him as a person of interest. Catherine, will we ever have any satisfactory explanation of a motive here? Uh, well, the prosecution certainly didn't put forward a motive in this case. Um, you know, oh, he, he can speculate. Was it, was he trying to, you know, rob her? Was there an attempted, you know, was there a sexual motive to this? There was no, there's no evidence of that either. Um, and I think that's probably one of one of the most difficult things maybe for the family in this is that there is no answer as to why uh, this happened. There was no connection between them either. That was set out from the start, these two people did not know each other. So it wasn't a case that there was any sort of, you know, there's no bad blood between them. They didn't know each other. And it's a random killing in the, like I say, a random killing in broad daylight um, that nobody can make sense of. And we don't have a motive because, you know, there, was one, there wasn't one established um, and it certainly wasn't put forward. So it's left hanging there. And I think that's the very scary thing about this. And the thing that has frightened everybody about this is that it could have happened to anybody. And unfortunately, it was a case of wrong place, wrong time. She loved socialising and she never confined herself to any particular norm, but was a friend to all who had the pleasure of knowing her. She was everything you could hope for in the young woman and she will never be out of our hearts. We will cherish her memory and keep alive her legacy and achievements in her short life. And my thanks to Catherine Fegan and to Emer Cotter. I'm Fiona Sheen, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Dave Hanratty and Gareth Mulhall, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE, News Talk and the Irish Independent. 
And if you've been affected by this podcast, there are a list of helplines available by searching someone to talk to at the Irish Independent. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts.